For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Isaiah 54.10. Thanks, Violet. Well, good morning, Table Community Church. It is good to be here with you this morning. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Catherine McIver, and I serve as a deacon here at TCC, and it is my privilege to officially welcome you to the season of Advent. In just about every church, there are a couple of big deal days each year. The very minimum, we're talking Christmas and Easter, right? But depending on your experiences, you may or may not know that these celebrations are part of an annual rhythm called the church calendar or the church year. Practices and themes to revisit year after year, and today, the first Sunday of Advent, marks the beginning of our new church year. The word Advent simply means arrival, and the season of Advent is set aside as a season of preparation for what we celebrate on Christmas Day, the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. Now, my first experience with Advent as a kid was a simple Advent calendar, essentially two layers of cardboard with little doors labeled for each day in December with really, really, really crummy chocolate inside. <laughs> And this is our popular cultural understanding of Advent, right? It's an excuse to get some sort of set of 24 treats to open December 1st to the 24th. But now we've moved way past crummy chocolate. A quick stroll through Costco or Trader Joe's. Uh, these days will feature everything from a beer or wine Advent calendar, uh, beauty product Advent calendars, and yes, indeed, Advent calendars for your cats and dogs, ladies and gentlemen. But, but... For us as followers of Jesus, the season of Advent is a series of invitations that go deeper than treats. If we let it, Advent can form us to be people who watch and wait well. People who arrive at Christmas Day with a deep sense of joy, completely independent of our circumstances. The first invitation of Advent is to remember the watching and waiting of God's people as they longed for the birth of the Messiah. There's something for us to learn here about waiting in hope and looking forward to something we may not fully understand. The second invitation is to remember that we live on the other side of the incarnation, the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. We live in the fulfillment of the promises those people were waiting for. But contrary to their expectations, and if I'm honest, some of my own, the arrival of Jesus did not immediately wipe all trace of darkness from our world. And so Advent is an invitation to acknowledge that though we celebrate the gift of the light, there is still deep darkness around us. And yet, God is with us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Where our culture treats Christmas as a season of sugar-sweet, often false happiness, Advent is an invitation to remember that Jesus came to be God with us in the darkness. The third invitation of Advent is to remember that although we live on the other side of the incarnation, we are still waiting for the complete fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised us the gift of the Spirit, that he might dwell in us, and together his followers would be his living body here on earth. But he also promised that he would return and bring to complete fulfillment the kingdom he inaugurated during his earthly life and ministry. And so here we are, a Spirit-filled, sent people, living between the two advents of Jesus. 
a people living between the gift of God with us and the final eternal reality of God with us. Advent is an invitation to live in the tension of this already and not yet. And so this year, as a church family, we are responding to those invitations in our Sunday gatherings, in our communities, through justice and mercy ministries, and in our table kids' classes. We will remember the watching and waiting Testament prophecies that foretold the coming of the Messiah, read in our gatherings, like Violet did this morning, and that's reflected in our table kids' countdown to Christ chains as well. We will remember that Jesus came to be God with us right in the midst of our brokenness by exploring the traditional themes of Advent— Love, peace, joy, and hope. In Table Kids and in our Sunday gatherings, we'll explore a story from the Gospels each week where Jesus embodied those themes, and we'll talk about what that means for us today as living members of the body of Christ. We'll also remember that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it by loving our neighbors well in this season. You may have noticed that our giving tree is up in the lobby this morning, and our partnership with DHS this Advent season is such a beautiful way for us as a church family to be a picture of these themes of Advent, and ultimately a picture of Jesus himself. Because of years of relationship building and years of you all showing up to support DHS through our Justice and Mercy Ministries, this year we have the privilege of hosting an in-person, highly relational event specifically for the teens that DHS serves right here in our building on Wednesday, December 21st. And if you haven't walked with Molly, like in person with DHS in our building is a huge, huge win. And so we are just so grateful and excited about that. And there are more details to come on that and there'll be lots of opportunities for you to like show up in person and serve. But there are two ways you can start preparing for that event today. One aspect of the event will be a holiday gift market where teens can pick out their own Christmas present, and so we need your help to stock that market. You can pick up an ornament um, from the giving tree and some shopping guidelines from Molly in the lobby today. And if, like me, you don't necessarily understand what the kids are into these days, uh, this is a great opportunity to connect with a teen in your community group to ask them to help you figure out what to buy. The second action item for today is to pray. Pray that even now the teens we want to serve would feel a tug in their heart to show up on the 21st and pray that we would creatively respond to this invitation to be present as the actual body of Jesus, a picture of Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And finally, we will remember that we are a people living between two Advents through the practice of lighting an Advent wreath. For hundreds of years, Jesus' followers have let the lighting of these candles help them embody the growing light as we move closer to Christmas. Table Kids will be making kid-friendly, totally fireless Advent wreaths this year in their classes. Jordan has some really beautiful resources for communities to participate in this practice together. And each Sunday, as we transition from studying God's word together to celebrating communion together, we will light the candle for that week a picture of our collective watching and waiting for the return of Jesus, even as we seek to be his body on earth right now. In just a moment, Carrie Faye will be preaching on our first Advent theme of love. But because I'm the deacon for prayer and liturgy, and because I deeply believe that practicing Advent well forms us into a people that can be a blessing to our world, let me offer this prayer for us from every moment holy over our Advent season together. Let's pray. As we prepare our homes for the coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. You came once for your people, O Lord, and you will come for us again. Though there was no room at the inn to receive you upon your first arrival, 
we would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts. By these small tokens, we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space. That God, on a particular night, in a particular place, so many years ago, was born to us, an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our trees, as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen. Good morning, church family. Our Advent topic for this morning, love, is one of those incredibly broad, vague, and complicated words. We love bacon. (laughs) We love coffee. Yes. We love the holidays. We love our friends. We love pineapple on pizza. Or not. (laughs) We love road trips. We love our pets. We love our spouses. My daughter, Violet, has a deep-seated love for one store in particular. Any guesses? (laughs) No. Here's a hint, free samples and $1.50 hot dogs. It is Costco. She has been a die-hard Costco fan since the age of five, okay? And not just any Costco, it has to be this Costco here in Hillsborough. It is the right Costco. All the other ones are the wrong Costcos, okay? Here's evidence of her love. When she was six years old, we're driving down the road, she announces from the back seat, Mommy, I love you. I love you a lot. I love you like so much. This is hard for me to say, but I love you more than Costco. (laughs) It has become something of a saying in our household, like I even love you more than Costco. It's okay. And I think at times this word love, it's fun, right? But it gets so diluted by overuse and our emotions and our experiences and complications that we forget what love is at its core. We lose the heartbeat, if you will. So that's our plan for this morning. Let's start the Advent season together by getting reacquainted with love, divine love, and specifically what Jesus teaches us about divine love. Then we'll end by asking three Adventy kind of questions, and we'll take communion together as a family, okay? Let me pray over us real quick. Lord, thank you for this time, this space to gather. Thank you for each and every human in this room right now. You have gathered this group together specifically on purpose so that you might teach us something new this morning about your kind of love. Lord, our ears are open to you. Our hearts are open to you. We are craving your words and your fresh direction for our lives. Invade our space, Holy Spirit. Silence the distractions in this room. We are listening. Amen. Okay, we are heading to Luke 5 today for most of the morning. And as we do, the word that I want you to hold in your minds is embodiment. Okay, remember the word embodiment. We'll come back to it later, but for now, what does embodiment mean? 
Okay? The tangible or visible form of an idea or quality, a concept, in body form. Okay? She is the embodiment of beauty, right? literally what beauty would look like if it had a body. Okay? So 1 John 4, 9 says that in Jesus, the love of God was made manifest or physical among us. So if Jesus is the embodiment of love, literally love in a body, then it stands to reason that his life story, not some mushy Hallmark movie, is the best place for us to learn about love. So let's head to the book of Luke together, chapter five. We'll start with verse 17. This is a really familiar story, and it's about a lot of different things. There's friendship and miracles and healing. But today I want to read it specifically together through the lens of love. Okay, verse 17 from the NLT translation. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Okay, a few things here. I love the NLT phrasing. It seemed that these men just kept on showing up like whack-a-mole, but with Pharisees, right? Like they just kept coming. And to set the stage, this takes place really early in Jesus' ministry. But already the word is out about him. He's attracting huge followings wherever he goes. This is after his baptism moment, that family reunion moment where God the Father blessed Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. And here again in the story in Luke, we see this Trinitarian teamwork at play. Father, Son, Spirit are working together. Some translations say, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Some say the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The Spirit's present, even Old Testament, was to heal and equip and support. And Luke's focus, if you read it all in the Gospel of Luke, you know, his focus is on the least, the last, and the lost. He is a doctor, and he spends a lot of his time in his life and also in his writing focusing on the sick people around him, those in need of healing. And yes, I do mean physical healing, but you'll see here that physical healing almost always points to a secondary spiritual healing. Okay, they're always connected. Let's keep going. Verses 18 and 19. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. So we could go into the architecture, the history of the houses of that time, what this actually would have looked like. Some translations say they dug through the sod on the roof, right, to get down to Jesus. But for today, I think it's just enough to say that his friends tried the front door first, and when that didn't work, they got creative and they tore a hole in the house, okay? It was audacious and messy and desperate and a really cool picture of the best kind of friendship. These are like the ride or die friends, right? The kind that love you through your worst moments, who aren't afraid to break a few rules and ruffle some feathers to help you. And the coolest part of this, I think, is that these are the kind of friends who know that the best gift they can possibly give you is to deliver you straight. True friendship doesn't have to know all the answers. It just has to know enough to continually point us to the one that does know the answers, right? That's true friendship. And it should make us ask ourselves, do we have friends like this in our lives? Are we these kinds of friends to other people? I have a friend named Amber who is this kind of friend. She's fiercely loyal. 
She's persistent and she's strong. She's rebellious in all the right ways. She advocates for us. She prays for us. And she's the kind of friend who threatens to have bags of elephant dung delivered anonymously to the doorsteps of anyone who hurts us. (laughs) Because apparently there are companies who offer this service, right? There you go. Okay, moving on. Verse 20. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. So never underestimate the power of your faith in the lives of other people. I love the scene in The Chosen. If you haven't seen this one yet, this is your homework. Season one, episode six, it captures what I read in the story. Jesus never seems to break or lose his patience during any of this. There's no hint of frustration or irritation at the interruption. His response is compassion and empathy. And isn't it so true that who we really are is revealed most honestly when we are interrupted doing something that we think is important? It's true. So yes, Jesus shows love in this moment. But doesn't he also kind of seem to miss the whole point? Like they lower a lame man down in front of him and he's like, your friends have faith, so I forgive your sins. Like, isn't the paralysis the point of this moment? So what's actually going on here, I think, is key to understanding divine love. Let's keep going. Verse 21. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So to us now in 2022, reading that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, feels pretty normal to us. We aren't shocked. But that day, in that room, those would have been extremely shocking and dramatic words. The room would have fallen silent. Everybody in that room would have known the Old Testament establishes God as the only forgiver of sins. Psalm 103, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, over and over. And Jesus is making a really clear and controversial connection between himself and God. Only God forgives sins. I'm forgiving your sins. You connect the dots. It's a classic logical syllogism. And it was absolutely on purpose. Look what he does next. Verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. So I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. It's so satisfying. He's like, what's harder to say these words or do a healing miracle? You think I can't do either? Here, hold my beer, right? That's basically what he says. (laughs) I love that he knows their thoughts and their doubts. He says the physical is a representation of the spiritual. And because you can only see physical things, I'm going to heal his body as a sign to you and a symbol that I'm also going to heal his soul. Because all of him needs healing, not just his legs. This is a quality of divine love that we're going to get to in a minute. But this ability to see past what's going on on the outside into the true need. And that last line is fire. Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. You are forgiven. You are healed. Now pick up the prison cell that you've been trapped in and move forward with your life. Go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. This is on my top ten moments of wish I could have been there partially for the way that Jesus schools the religious leaders, and partly because of this response, everyone was gripped with great wonder. In the best way possible, Jesus is infectious. 
Do you know why? It's because divine love is infectious. The natural response to divine love is wonder and joy and awe and dancing and singing and a deeply rooted response of praise and gratitude. And if you and I are not responding like that to God's love, there's a good chance that some other version of love has wandered in and diluted it for us, which I think is a really good transition to our so what moment this morning. So what? What does this story have to do with us? So what if we don't fully grasp divine love? Aren't the other kinds enough? So what was that one word that I asked you to hold in your mind? Embodiment. This Advent season reminds us Jesus is the embodiment of divine love. Okay? The whole idea of God's love wasn't new to the people in this story. All those people waiting for the Messiah, they knew something about God's love already from the Old Testament, right? So I think it's really important that we look at that for just a minute. What did they already know at that point? Let's do a really quick refresher course. Old Testament passages about God's love, three minutes max. This will probably feel really familiar. Divine love is steadfast. They knew this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Steadfast means reliable, sturdy, a solid foundation, and it's all through the Old Testament, this word steadfast. The Lord is God, the faithful who keeps covenants and steadfast love. You have shown great and steadfast love to us, Lord. You've granted me life and steadfast love. You've led your people in your steadfast love. Dozens and dozens of references. It is easy to find. But I'd say it's not easy to find that kind of love in our world today. Has anyone here been loved by someone who later decided that they just didn't love you? A parent who left? A best friend who moved on? A teacher or a coach who gave up on you? This is not sturdy or steadfast love, and it's not the way that God loves us. But it's often the way that we fear God loves us because of our experiences. Okay, because no matter how people have failed us, Divine love is steadfast. Next, divine love is unchanging. When God appears to Moses at Mount Sinai, here's how he identifies and describes himself. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. The message version says, so much love, so deeply true, loyal in love for a thousand generations. God's love for you does not change or waver from day to day. His love for you is the same on your best and your worst day, following your worst sin and your most selfless moment, unchanging. We humans struggle to love like that. I struggle to love like that. We feel our love shift and change all too often, so we assume that God is like that too, but it's just not the case. Remember what Violet read just a few minutes ago? Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Unfailing love that will not be shaken. My covenant will never be removed because divine love endures forever. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God's love endures forever. During my college years, I saw dozens of third-day concerts. There's my confession. They were a big deal in the Christian rock concert scene. Anyway, one of the most powerful moments in every one of those concerts was a song about this same concept. Here are the lyrics, a piece of them anyway, basically taken from Psalm 136. Though the treasures of this life may fade, your love endures forever. They will pass away, things that man has made. 
but your love endures forever. Though the seasons change with passing time, your love endures forever. The sun will fade just for the night, your love endures forever. Though our pains and joys will come and go, your love endures forever. Even in my fears, I will always know that your love endures forever. So we know, and the people in our story also knew from the Old Testament, that God's love for us was steadfast, it was unchanging, and it endures forever. And these are all really good things. But all too often, our negative or our lukewarm experiences with what our world calls love has made this really difficult for us to grasp. Because if your parents seem to love you more when you got straight A's, it's hard to receive God's unconditional love. And if your spouse decided to stop loving you one day, it's hard to believe that God will love you forever. And if you struggle to love God or people well, it's really hard to understand that God does not struggle to love you well. And we aren't the first people to struggle with understanding the nature of his love. This misunderstanding of his heart towards us goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis. So when we start listening to what other voices are telling us about love, it gets really blurry really quick. Here's my point. God knew that we would need a really clear picture to help us understand. Maybe an example. Better yet, a human example of what love looks like in human form. Love embodied, love in a body, love walking around on a pair of legs. Love came down at Christmas, right? So think back to the story we just read and ask ourselves those three big Advent questions. One, if Jesus embodies divine love, what do we learn about the love of God through Jesus in this story? Advent reminds us Jesus is God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel, God in body form, right? That means we can learn about what God is like by watching Jesus. So in our text, what do we learn about God from watching Jesus? Let's just keep adding to our list. So in addition to being steadfast, unchanging, enduring forever, we now learn that divine love is patient. A better way to say this might be that divine love allows for interruptions. Let's look at verse 19 one more time. They lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. In the middle of what he was doing. We don't like interruptions. I am often at my most unloving when I am interrupted while doing what I think is important. My kids can totally attest to this. I am a fast walker, a fast talker, a fast eater, a fast driver, a fast doer of everything. And interruptions just slow me down. But Jesus is the embodiment of divine love. He is unflustered. He is not frustrated by the interruptions. And this is a pattern all throughout his life, right? It drove his disciples ask, but he's interrupted all the time. He's interrupted from his real ministry by sick people and bleeding people and women and children. And each time he offers them a one-on-one, -on -one unhurried exchange. Each time he shows us that these interruptions are the real ministry. Just as a thought, what if we defined how successful our days were just by how well we handled interruptions? There's a theology professor that I recently discovered, Richard Beck, great stuff, who writes about interruptibility as a lifestyle and one that Jesus was really good at. Listen to this. Basically, interruptibility is a form of welcome and hospitality. It is a way of making room for others. The space we create is less a physical space than a temporal space, making room in your to-do list, making space so we can slow down and pay attention to others. In this, interruptibility is a form of slowing down. Interruptibility is a sign that we are moving at the speed of love. 
Here's the truth. Because we hate interruptions and struggle with patience, we believe that God does too. Not so. He is endlessly patient, endlessly gentle, and embraces interruptions gladly. He makes room for others. He moves at the speed of love, which is really different than the speed of Carrie Faye. <laughs> Next, through Jesus, we learn that divine love sees the heart of the issue. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Divine love means that God knows us so intimately, he sees straight past what the rest of the world gets stuck on. Straight past the paralyzed legs to the paralyzed soul, to what is actually broken deep within us. The Bible says in 1 Kings, God alone knows the hearts of humans. 1 Chronicles, the Lord understands every intent and every thought. In Psalms, that God knows the secrets of our heart before we even say a word. It can be scary to realize just how vulnerable we are with God, to know that he sees past our actions, straight to our darkest thoughts, our messed up motives, and our twisted fears. But here's why that feels scary, because that level of transparency and vulnerability would not be safe in the hands of people. But in the hands of divine love, we are safe. We are known fully and still loved fully. This is just good parenting and practice, right? The ability to see past that grocery store tantrum to the exhaustion or just plain hunger that's behind it. To look beyond the behavior of our kids to the heart issue. And I would say any good parenting on our part is merely an echo of the way that God parents us. And he always sees the heart issue. One of Tim Keller's most famous quotes goes like this, to be loved but not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, that transforms you. We can trust that God can see to the heart of our issue even when we can't. He knows us fully and he loves us completely. That is the beauty of divine love. Next, divine love is personal Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Divine love is not just this big amorphous concept, God's love for a nation from a distance. It is personal. It is face-to-face. He knows us. He knows what we are thinking. He knows what we are questioning and doubting, and he meets us there. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. Even the hairs on your head are Numbered, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The sheep hear his voice and he calls them by name. Divine love greets us by name and desires a personal interaction. It challenges us and molds us and it loves us when we stumble. Which brings us to the climax of our story. Divine love heals us. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Divine love heals us, and I don't mean physically, although that can certainly be the case sometimes. I mean spiritually and emotionally. All those flawed and broken views of love that we have, all those times that we've been hurt and now we have a messed up view of love, God's perfect, pure love can heal all of that and set us right. We can stand up and pick up our mats and return home as new, healed people, capable of real love and of receiving real love. Think of it like um, like water, like the paralyzed guy on the mat was being lowered into the healing waters, okay? Completely submerged in that room of divine love. Not even one square inch of him left dry, like baptism, submersion. 
This is probably a terrible analogy, but last week I made these really good orange muffins for one of my classes, basically to wordlessly apologize for a really tough quiz. And I was trying to use a spoon to put the citrus glaze on the tops of the muffins, but the tops of the muffins were all like craggy and broken and it just wasn't doing the job. So I flipped the muffin over and I just dunked the whole thing into the glaze. Worked like a charm. Being submerged completely filled the crevices in all of those hard to reach spaces, right? That's how divine love works too. A little drizzle on top is not enough for us. When we are lowered on our mat before Jesus, actually submerged into a place where we encounter that kind of love, we emerge changed and healed. Okay. Last, divine love is irresistible. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. Divine love is contagious. Jesus is positively infectious. It's impossible to witness someone's healing or transformation and not be profoundly impacted. The natural result of an encounter with Jesus and his love is praise, gratitude, wonder, awe, and a changed life. Let me say it a different way. Our encounters with Jesus should have a contagious effect on the world around us, right? A divine love should flow out of us and be irresistible to Christians by our love. But all too often, we aren't irresistible to the world. And I'd argue perhaps the reason is that we have bought into a cheaper form of love than what's available. So that said, here's our second question. This Advent season, how can we reclaim the concept of love? Let's take it back. It's not news to anyone here that our culture gets it wrong. Love is portrayed as an emotion and we are the victims, right? Think about the verbs. We fall in love. We are love sick, right? We are struck by Cupid's arrow and love is far, far more than an emotion. Love is not something that just is passive, that happens to you. That kind of love is a scientifically provable series of hormonal chemical reactions, oxytocin, estrogen, testosterone, dopamine. Hormones aren't evil, emotions aren't evil, but they aren't love. And if you minimize it to that, you miss the whole point. If you try to understand God's love through that lens, it's like trying to understand the ocean by studying a fishbowl divine love, as demonstrated by Jesus that day, and I'd argue by his friends, is um, active. It's a choice. It's something we receive and choose repeatedly, a deliberate decision that we make whether or not our emotions align, and especially when they don't. Tim Keller again says, our culture says that feelings of love are the basis for actions of love. And of course, that can be true. But it's truer to say that actions of love can lead consistently to feelings of love. To reclaim love, we have to first receive it from God, participate in it, allow ourselves to be lowered into, submerged into that room where Jesus is standing waiting to receive us, to heal us. We have to actively dispel the lie that love is just a fickle and fleeting emotion. We have to recognize that our own experience with love is broken and does not accurately reflect the love of God. Richard War writes, because our available understanding of love is almost always conditioned on I love you if, or I love you when, most people find it almost impossible apart from real transformation to comprehend or receive divine love. In fact, we cannot understand it in the least unless we stand under it like a cup beneath a waterfall. When we truly understand divine love, our politics, our anthropology, our economics, and our, mo and our movements for justice will all change. 
which just sets up our last question for the morning as we get ready to wrap up. As we wait, how can we embody this kind of love as well? As we wait for Jesus to return, as we wait to be reunited in a restored creation, as we wait in a world full of sin, how can we embody divine love? Because it is our call to embody this as well. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. God loves through us. First, he loves us, and then he loves through us. It's the natural progression when it comes to divine love. We receive it. We participate in it. We are transformed by it, and then we extend it. Remember, Jesus is the embodiment of divine love. Love is his identity, the inner condition of his heart. And as we spend more time with him and grow to be more and more like him, receiving his love, participate in it, being transformed by it, and then extending it, guess what? Our own hearts start to take on that same inner condition. We reflect and extend more and more divine love almost automatically. Our love for others becomes more patient becomes more capable of seeing their true need beyond what they're presenting, becomes more personal, more healing, more irresistible. It's this two-part interaction, do you see, as we learn to trust and receive God's love for us, that it is steadfast and enduring and unchanging and unconditional. We can then pour back into the world that love that we have received. First, he loves us, then he loves through us. And this is the invitation to each one of us during Advent, to recognize that Jesus is the embodiment of divine love, to allow ourselves to be submerged and lowered into it fully, to give ourselves permission to be loved that way, and then and only then to extend that kind of love to the world around us. As we get ready to approach the tables of communion, I just want to say one more thing about divine love. It is selfless. That's how we know if it's real. There's this terrible scene in the third Hobbit movie where Toriel's romantic interest, Keely, dies, and in her grief, she yells, why does it hurt so much, right? And then Thrandall, the elven king, responds by saying, because it was real. real." (laughs) And setting aside all terrible adaptations of a Tolkien's children's book that was never meant to be the Lord of the Rings prequel, there is some truth there. First John 3 says, we know what real love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. We know it was real because it was selfless. My favorite devotion author, Henry Jowett, captures it beautifully. The real test of any love is what it is prepared to lay down. How much is it willing to spend? How much will it bleed? There is much counterfeit love about. It lays down nothing. It only takes things up. It is self-seeking, using the speech and accents of love. Love may always be known by its expenditures, its self-crucifixions, its calvaries. Love is always laying down its life for others. I woke up this morning with 1 Corinthians 13 on my heart. The love chapter, right? But what if, what if it's not just about romantic love? What if it's not this cute trinket that we read at weddings? What if instead it's this picture of divine love, the kind of love that is being offered to you right now. Listen, listen. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice 
about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. At Advent, we look back to the first coming of Jesus. When a man embodied divine love and laid down his life for us, and communion is a way to remember that gift. And at Advent, we also look forward to the day that is all restored and healed once and for all, to a time when we will live fully immersed, submerged in divine love permanently. And communion is a way to remember that promise as well. Sisters and brothers, divine love is waiting for you at these tables this morning, and not just for the polished and perfect and clean among us. These tables are for the hurt and the messy and the doubting, the dirty and the broken. They are for those of us who are paralyzed on our mats physically and spiritually. Those of us doubting and struggling to heal and move on. Divine love is not this prize that we get after we clean ourselves up spiritually. It's a gift that is best received by the desperate and the broken and the hurting. Like Catherine said earlier, each week we're going to light one of these candles in our Advent wreath together, and then we'll come to the tables of communion as a church family. So let's do the first one. We light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. Table Community Church, as we come to the tables this morning, may we encounter the divine love waiting for us. And may we hold fast to this reminder, God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good.